And this is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray real quick before we jump in. God, thank you for your word. And we approach you, Lord, right now just as a good father. You love us. And God, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts to be able to receive that love from you. That it would transform us, reshape us, help empower us for mission. God, thank you that our lives have purpose in you. And we pray that you would help us to walk that out and to live in that in completeness. So we devote this morning and this time in your hands. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? If you'd like, open up to the book of John chapter one, or John chapter three, verse sixteen. John three sixteen. If you guys don't have Bibles, I think we had some ushers that might have been handing out Bibles. Maybe, maybe not. Um, if not, then you're out of luck. You just got to use what's on your smartphone. It's all good. But anyways, uh, John three sixteen. What I want to do right now is I want to read that passage again. It's one of those passages that is probably already very familiar to the majority of you. If you're unfamiliar with it, just go ahead and listen to this passage, John. 316, I'll read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, throughout this season of Advent, we've been basically looking at this entire verse and trying to understand like different phrases and concepts within this really rich verse. One of the reasons why we've been saying this has been an important um, season for us to really dig deeper into this passage is because um, this is one of those passages that may become over familiar to us. In other words, we read it, it doesn't impact us, it doesn't hit us the way the scripture should impact us and hit us. And so what we've been trying to do is look at a various phrase from this passage each week. And so first week we look at the subject of God and who God really is. Uh, the week after that, we looked at the fact that this God loves this world so much uh, that he gives. And then last week, we looked at the concept of son. He gives his son, the sonship of Jesus and what that entailed. Today, I want to just look at the final phrase, which is that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So I'll repeat that again. Whoever believes in him, Jesus should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what I want to do right now is I want to basically look at three aspects of this particular last movement of John 3.16. I just want to look at the three uh, words that are basically used there in the passage. Number one, I want to look at the word perish, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Secondly, I want to take a look at the word uh, life or eternal life. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at the word believe. What exactly does Jesus, who is uh, writing this or speaking this, what does it mean by belief? So those three things I want to take a look at. Uh, the reason why I think it's important for us to think about the idea of perish uh, or destruction. Some of your Bible translations might have a variety of different words. This word actually appears around a hundred plus times in the New Testament and the particular word destroyed uh, just or perish or ruin or uh, some variant of that particular word really appears a lot throughout the Bible. It's a pretty significant theme. But the reason why I think it's important for us to think about what does this mean to perish, to be destroyed, to find its uh, end in ruin. Um, I think it's important because the way that we often have to think about God is shaped by either pop culture or various myths 
um, or stories that are not really steeped in scriptural truths. And those concepts shape our thinking. So in other words, it's not unpopular for many people to think about God as a tormentor or a destroyer. That God's aim in life is ultimately to consign and castigate and destroy people in eternal suffering forever and ever and ever. Some place underneath the ground where it's very dark and very hot and torturous. And there's this idea that oftentimes can think of that's how God is, that God, number one, his number one attribute is one of destroyer. Again, I think in popular culture, that is the myth that oftentimes is associated in terms of thinking about who God is. What I want to suggest to you is that concept is actually not steep or rooted in biblical truths. However, what I want to do is I want to just take a look at this particular word that gets utilized here from John chapter 3, verse 16, um, and to try to understand one of the best ways if you are reading the Bible or studying the scripture, or if you're maybe not even a Christian, you're just trying to make sense of how do you understand the Bible. One of the best ways to try to understand certain words or concepts, am I getting an echo or is this just, is this an echo in my head? A little bit of an echo, okay. I was afraid it was in my head. And if it's in my head, that's not good. Um, but the point of the matter is, is this idea of uh, destroy or any really Bible word is to try to trace it throughout the rest of the storyline of the Bible and to understand how does it get used? How do other New Testament or Old Testament writers use that particular word? What I, I want to do that right now with this particular word. The actual word that gets used in your Bible translations as destroyed, or they have another translation again, it might be a different word for that. It's the word Apollo me, Apollo me. It can be translated as spoil or destroyed or something maybe being ruined or going rancid. And I'll show you how this kind of plays out. Or even the word suffering loss, the loss of something. So here's the way John, who wrote this, uh, uses this particular word. Uh, John chapter th- uh, 6, verse 12. Listen to what he says. When they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be Apollo mie, so that nothing would be lost. So in this context, it's bread that's lost, that's going to go hard, and it's going to get bad. It's going to be lost. In other words, it's going to uh, move from being something that's consumable to something that's not consumable. It's not no longer any good. Uh, chapter 6, verse 27 says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal, eternal life, which the Son of Man gave you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So in this particular context, again, he uses food, food that can suffer loss or perish. We might say spoil, right? Um, John chapter 6, verse 38 uh, to verse 40 says this, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. That phrase, lose nothing. That Jesus is saying that I have a mission. My goal is to come into this world and to to rescue uh, people so that none would ultimately be lost. He goes on in this passage. I think it's worthwhile just going on to read. Um, he says that not, that I would lose none that God has given to me, but that I would raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. Uh, skip ahead to chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Uh, he goes on and says this. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That word destroy is Apollo Mie. Because I'm saying, I came that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
John chapter 10, verse 27 to 28 says this, the sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Same word. And no one will snatch them or take them, steal them out of my hand, says Jesus. Um, elsewhere throughout the New Testament, just to be fair, again, I think it's really easy when someone's trying to make a point to omit certain passages. We would call this cherry picking, right? And that's not a good way to read the Bible. When we read the Bible and we're trying to make sense of what a certain idea or concept is in the Bible, you have to take the whole of it. And again, this is just sort of like reading 101, but it's really easy in today's cultural context to just kind of pick and choose passages that sort of harmonize or resonate with our preconceived ideas or notions about who God is and to omit other ones. Uh, so for example, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says this, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy, it's the word polymy, both soul and body in hell. So what Jesus says here again, don't don't be afraid of you know human beings. They they could they could cause harm to you, but they can't cause ultimate harm to you. Jesus, what he's identifying is that there is a form of destruction that's beyond spoilage or rancidity or something going bad or foul or moving from a state of being consumable to a state of inconsumable or something that's good to a place of bad. He's saying that there is a, there's a state of the soul, state of existence that can actually become one of utter loss, utter destruction. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. There's another passage, which I'm not going to read, but just make allusion to it, that Jesus gives this parable. He says that there are those that have connection to a vineyard, and they misappropriate the vineyard. They take advantage of it, in other words. They take advantage of other people. And then Jesus in that parable says that, don't you know that one day when the owner of that parable, or or the owner of that, um, not parable, what's the word I'm looking for? Vineyard. I don't know why that thought couldn't come to my mind. Vineyard. Anyways, the owner of the vineyard, when he shows up, thank you, by the way, uh, he is going to basically wreak havoc over these that have brought abuse and destruction. And his whole point within the parable is to make the statement that, that the, the owner of the vineyard will come and bring uh, loss upon those. They will suffer loss at the hand of the owner. So here's what I want to think about. We'll take away three big concepts. That I, that's just the way that that word gets utilized throughout the book of John as well as other passages of the New Testament. So number one, uh, I'll just make three observations. Number one, um, uh, follow me, or in other words, destruction, loss, ruin, pick your English word. Um, number one is the default of all human nature. Number one. That's, I think that's what's being described here within this particular word. It's the default of all nature. In other words, destruction, ruin, loss is not something you have to do in order to bring about destruction, loss in anything. It will just naturally happen. In the scientific world, we would call that entropy. Or we would call it second law of thermodynamics. In other words, things in nature are moving from a status of togetherness, everything is working fine, flowing well, to a state of chaos. That's just human nature. That bread that you just bought or that incredible sourdough bread that you just baked, right? Massive amounts of COVID baked bread, right? At some point will spoil. It will get hard. It will no longer be good. The food that you make at some point, unless you put it in the 
refrigerator. At some point, it will go bad, and even then, it will still go bad. The point of the matter is spoilage, ruin, loss, destruction, choose your English word. It is the natural state of all things. In other words, in order for you and I to ever have an appointment with loss and destruction, all you need to do is nothing. It will happen. We call that getting old. It will happen. The second thing that we see with regard to this is that it is caused by people and or dark forces. So human beings can bring loss and destruction and ruin upon people's lives. It expedites it. So in other words, this is what we would call abuse, where another human being would cause destruction or ruin or death or brokenness, or they steal something or they uh, malign something or they ruin something or they graffiti your car or they scratch it or they do something to it to bring about destruction or they abuse you or they cause pain in your life. All of these are various forms of suffering, loss, and ruin. We also know that Jesus identifies, he says, for the enemy. Uh, this could be a reference to another human being, but I think it's probably more so a reference to these dark forces. We would maybe be more familiar to describe it as the devil or uh, demonic forces or intangible realities that are out there that are malevolent, that we see that even within the course of the scripture, that these dark forces, he says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy that injustice and brokenness and ruin uh, happen by other people bringing about destruction in other people's lives. Maybe some of you, all of us, at some point in our life, we've suffered the experience of that. We've encountered ruin upon our lives by something, some force, some other human being that has taken place in our lives, and we've experienced that. And then lastly, what I want to point out is that even though God has the power, as Jesus rightly points out in Matthew 10, verse 28, 28 again, do not fear those, those that can kill the body or kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy. God has the power if he wanted to. Who holds ultimate power? God does. But what we see consistently over and over and over again the overwhelming percentages of examples when God is described using in any form of relationship with this particular word, it's God is the one is the active agent rescuing people from a state of chaos or destruction. So this is the big idea I want you to take away before we jump into the last few ones and we're actually going to be done here. Is I want you to think about it's not God that's the active agent causing destruction in your life. God is the one that's stepping in and bringing a a sustaining or a suspense or a suspension of that destruction. It's God who's coming in and rescuing you and I from that destruction. That's exactly what Jesus says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would find themselves rescued from destruction. This is what we see that Jesus does. So, for example, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but he is patient toward you. He's not willing that any would perish. So what's God's real agenda? What's God's real aim or desire for your life? It's not for you to suffer destruction. It's not for your life to somehow end up in a status of worthlessness. I don't know how you think about God, but my hope, this morning, right now, is that you would think about God as a God who's an active agent 
seeking to rescue you from meaninglessness or ruin or destruction. This is who God is. This is what he's actively up to in our lives. Uh, Here's another example. Matthew chapter 18, verse 14. It says this. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What's the will or the desire of God? That you perish? No. But that God rescue you. So this is a good time to just even pause and think about where is your status right now? Is it rescued? Are you in the hands of God? Are you still in a place where you're trying to swim for your own existence? Trying to stop or to quell the forces of destruction and ruin or chaos that are happening all around you. How are you doing with that? How is that task playing out? How successful are you? How unsuccessful are you? My hope, at least at some point, would be to invite you to understand the heart of your good father that's in heaven, that his aim is actually to bring about rescue in your life right now. Then I want to look at the last two words and I'll wrap it up. So number one, again, we pointed out the particular word perish, should not perish. And hopefully that was helpful. Secondly, I want to take a look at the word life. Jesus again says, listen, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What does Jesus mean by everlasting life? Again, some of your translations might vary from this, um, but the big idea, some translations might say age-abiding life, eternal life, everlasting life. This is one of those words in some ways that's kind of like odd. We don't really use this language in our modern-day vocabulary. Like, hey, how's things going today? Great, I have eternal life. Wonderful. What does that even mean, eternal life? Put definition to that. Again, it's one of those phrases that sometimes Christians are really good at throwing out Christianese phrases, right? Uh, ideas and concepts that are not really rooted in culture uh, at large. And they don't make a whole lot of sense. So in other words, you might be having a conversation with somebody and you're like, I'm so excited. I have eternal life. People are like, I don't even know what that means. It doesn't make any sense to me. What does it mean? So this is what I want to try to understand, that Jesus actually put some definition to what this is. So if you want, you can write this down. John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus actually says this. This is eternal life. So and then he gives a definition. This is eternal life. Listen to what he says. Now, again, I don't know how you would finish up the definition here, even before reading the passage. For some of us, I think, because we are preconditioned to think about a Christianity that's actually not rooted in Scripture, but it's more rooted in Gnosticism. And what I mean by that is this ethereal idea that one day all Christianity is, is it's an aim to kind of get you the golden ticket so that one day when you die, you go to heaven, whatever that is. But what Jesus is saying is for us to think about what eternal life is in it. Hello. Sorry. It's okay. Did you hear that? That's awesome. Siri, stop talking to me, Siri. Anyways, my wife's name is Sherry, by the way. And there's a lot of times I'll call her name and then Siri responds. Anyways, the point that I would make is this. Jesus describes eternal life. For, so for some of us, we might think about what is eternal life. We would maybe say eternal life is that place that we go when we die. I would suggest if that's, if that's your answer, then that's more connected to a non-biblical perspective than what Scripture actually teaches. 
This is what Jesus actually would say. In fact, if you are ever looking for a safe definition, meaning the right definition of anything, anytime you listen to what Jesus has to say, it's going to always be right, right? So here's what Jesus has to say. Again, John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom they have sent. So what does Jesus say that the definition really of eternal life is? Going to heaven when you die, going to another world, another existence? Not at all. That doesn't mean that it's, it's not any of that. It's just meaning that that's not where the emphasis is. For Jesus, the emphasis is this relational context with God the Father. What Jesus is saying is the ultimate end of all things in the universe, in the cosmos, is relationship with God. I don't know how you think about that or how that even translates over and in your brain. But what I would hope for you to consider is that the most important thing in our lives is the type of relationship that you have with God. You and I are relational beings. I think when 2020 is going to be over in the books, years from now, as psychologists and sociologists and doctors look back upon 2020, I think probably one of the most devastating realities of this year will actually, may actually be eclipsed, may eclipse the whole pandemic with the relational disconnect that's happened in so many people's lives. I've read actually in some places, the suicide rate is off the charts because of the isolation that's happened. Even more so, by way of comparison to the virus. Now, again, I'm not minimizing anything about that. I'm just simply saying that we are created for relationship with other people and with ultimately God. And what Jesus is saying is that eternal life, true age-abiding existence and life and flourishing ultimately is found in this relationship, proximity and relational connectedness to God. And Jesus says, this is what God has stepped into this world to bring about relationship. He stepped into the circle near you. The fact of the matter is, is that scripture teaches that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've run from God rather than run to God. And that's exactly what happens, man. When a relationship, when somebody offends the other, another person or there's conflict, what, what's a natural byproduct of that is you don't want to look at each other in the eye. Right? If someone's offended you, what's the last thing you want to do? You want to walk up to them and look them in the, unless you're like combative and confrontative. You want to fight. You want to brawl, right? You want to take them to the map. But if you are somebody that maybe has caused the offense, the last thing you want to do is look at that person in the eye because you know what you've caused that other person was hurt. And this is the way it is with God. All of us as human beings, we've turned our backs against God. And what God has done is he stepped into our world. He's come into our lives ultimately to bring about restoration of that broken relationship that took place by way of sin. And what Jesus describes that as is eternal life. God stepping into the gap, into the chaos, taking it upon himself, the void upon himself, the death upon himself, the perishing upon himself that you and I deserve, that you and I have walked in, that you and I live and experience on a regular basis. 
so that we could then experience his life. Now, last thing I want to take a look at is how does this all get appropriated within our lives? This is where Jesus says, again, just listen to the passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The point of connection here is the word belief. And this is where I want to end with the final concept of looking at this particular word. Belief. What does it mean to believe in God? Now, again, I think for many of our minds, we tend to think of belief as being nothing more than like a head nod. God, you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I think he exists. Just like you might believe in, I don't know, Santa or something like that, right? But the point of the matter is, is, is belief in a biblical context is not just mental assent to some fact or truth that's out there. That, that's, a, that's a very Western Greco-Roman mindset of belief. That's not how Jesus, who is Jewish, as well as his recipients of these letters, these New Testament words, uh, would have been understood. Within a Jewish context, the concept of belief is far more than just simply mental assent to a fact. It'd be better to think of the idea of belief as reorientation of your life around that, that word, that idea. Another word that maybe you can use to think about it, it's loyalty. Jesus says, whoever has placed their loyalties, their faithfulness, in God, he's rightly reoriented them to that relationship with God. And they'll never perish. The destruction, the destructive forces, the sense of loss that's constantly taking place in our world all around us, that's constantly taking place by way of relationships all around us, that's constantly taking place by way of dark forces that are disrupting and bringing chaos in our world. All of those things, Jesus said, will not have ultimate sway over our lives because you will be in right relationship with God, the Father, and with himself. How? By way of confidence, trust, loyalty. Perfect loyalty? No, because none of us have that. All of us, we are flawed human beings, and all of us, we will have moments. At our best state, we will be really, really devoted. At our worst state, we will be very flawed in our loyalty, and we will fail. Uh, One preacher described it this way. It's not about the perfection of your life. It's about the direction of your life. It's not about how perfect your loyalty is to God because all of us have imperfect loyalty to God. But what we do know is that this God has perfect loyalty to us. How do we know this? Jesus. Christmas. That's what we celebrate. God has not turned his back upon this world that's turned its back upon him. God has not turned his back upon this cosmos that has invited not just once, but repeatedly over and participated in constant destruction and loss and ruin, that he's come to do something about that. And this is what we celebrate. So ultimately, we see this fact of God's love being awakened in our lives. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about reminding ourselves of the depth of God's love, as we saw in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that who would ever believe in him, place their loyalty, confidence in this God, would not perish, but have everlasting life, relationship, love with the one who loves you.
This is what we're invited into. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and I want to, as they're coming up, just read a little portion of a song. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'm just going to read it for you. Sorry. It's uh, Joy to the World. It's a song that obviously many of us are familiar with. It's written by a guy named Isaac Watts. Listen to what he says. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace. Makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Just that phrase, the wonders of his love. What are the areas in your life right now that you can just simply look at and just say, these are the wonders of God's love that were demonstrated 